Leviticus chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord spoke again to Moses and to Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, These are the creatures which you may eat from all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever divides a hoof, thus making split hoofs, and choose the cud among the animals, that you may eat. Nevertheless, you are not to eat of these. Among those who chew the cud, or among those who divide the hoof, the camel. For no, it chews the cud, it does not divide the hoof, it is unclean to you. Likewise, the shapeling, the rock rabbit, the little hair that runs around in the rocks. For though it chews the cud, it does not divide the hoof, it's unclean to you. The rabbit also, for though it chews the cud, it does not divide the hoof, it is unclean to you. And the pig, for though it divides the hoof, thus making a split hoof, it does not chew the cud, it is unclean to you. You shall not eat of their flesh, nor touch their carcasses, they are unclean to you. Now if I were to quiz you, do you have that down? You got that. <laughs> Split hook, choose the cut. Okay. <laughs> Good to go. Father, I pray that you'll bless this study tonight. And I really ask, Lord, that you will, by your spirit, guide us into these things. We might think at a cursory glance, Lord, that split hoofs and chewing the cud have nothing to do with us. But we discovered last week already, though, Father, that they do. That there is an aspect of discernment. And distinction here that's important for us to learn and to understand. Father, we, we will see tonight how your word comes up time and time again. And the way that we handle your word, Father, is so incredibly important. We desire from, from day one in this fellowship to rightly handle, as Paul told Timothy, the word of truth. Not to, Father, to get out ahead of you and to do what our hearts or our flesh desire, but to remain firmly embedded in your word. And listening to your spirit and following and going in the direction that you call us. But Father, it is so, so peaceful. It brings so much security to us to know that we can rest in your word. That we do have guidance and direction. That where there are questions or confusion, that we can come right back to what you've handed to us. Study it and know it and know you better in the process. And Lord, I honestly think a lot of times the questions that come up in our lives, the confusions that drive us to your word, are, are there purposefully so that we'll spend more time with you. And after all, that is the point, isn't it, Father? That we spend time with you. And Father, when things go wrong in our lives, that we find ourselves in prayer with you. And sometimes those things aren't solved right away and we wonder why. And Lord, again, you remind us it's because you want to spend time with us. God, may we relish that time in the way that you do. Father, bless again the study of your word tonight. Give us insight. And understanding and clearly lead us Holy Spirit as we look at these things in Jesus name Amen well quickly reviewing last week we covered the first eight verses and they are about for Israel direction and distinction and discernment those are the words that we threw out distinction discernment direction and this whole chapter chapter 11 if you weren't here last week it's all about a dietary plan for Israel what animals they can eat and which animals they cannot eat and what they can touch that is clean and what they cannot touch that is unclean and it's beginning God is beginning to help Israel to look at the world around them and he is giving them word pictures everywhere, in nature, among the animals, in the things that they come in contact with every day. So that Israel will learn to discern. And this chapter has had the same impact on me. I pray it will have the same impact on you. However, remember as we study God's word, that everything we study is couched in grace and not legalism. For if you approach these things with a legalistic mindset, you might begin to say, oh, this is unclean, that is clean, I've got to remember which is which, I've got to handle things right, there are certain things I just can't eat because if I do, well then I'm unclean. No, this is a law for Israel. But what is a law for Israel becomes a picture and a guide for us, something that we can learn from. As Paul said, the law became a schoolmaster, a tutor to lead us to Christ, to lead us to grace. And so we study these things understanding grace and understanding, as Jesus said in Matthew 15:11, that it's not what enters into the mouth that defiles a man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. So the Lord here gives Israel a distinctive diet, but he's also doing something much greater here. He is teaching his children, and parents listen up. This is the example we ought to follow, to be concerned with teaching our children. If we desire our kids to grow in the knowledge of the grace of our Lord, we've got to do better than give them rules. We've got to teach them discernment. We've got to offer them wisdom. 
rules work for a time, for a season, especially when kids are smaller. But as they grow older, and especially a lot of the, the kids, I would call them here, but junior high, high school students who are here tonight, they're beyond just the simple rules. The right and the wrong. Don't do this. Do this. Why? Because I said so. Now they're in the place where they need to know discernment. Why is this wrong? Why is this right? Why should I walk down this path? It's hard work as a parent to enter into teaching discernment. It takes a lot more focus for moms and dads to do that. But it's incredibly important to the Lord for His children, but also for parents of children. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 10. The Lord is saying, remember the day, or Moses is saying, remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. Now a lot of our, our younger people here don't know much about Dr. Spock. They assume he's a character in Star Trek. But he actually led an entire generation of biblical illiteracy. Especially when it comes to parenting. Teaching parents and writing books. He was very famous uh, back several years ago. And teaching parents just to lay back and let the kids figure it out. Well, the reality is no children figure it out on their own. When left to our own devices, all of us head right down the path of sin. We need to learn discernment. What does that mean? What does it mean to teach discernment? Well, we saw a little bit of, of this last week. It means basically that we teach and model clean living. Clean living. Now, you use the phrase clean living today, and people hear that and they think, oh, that sounds kind of boring. Clean living. That's a guy who wears a suit, he doesn't smoke, he doesn't drink, and he doesn't, you know, do the soda pop, and he doesn't do the, the you know, he's clean living, clean living man. Well, we are called to this, to living lives that are clean. And some of the examples we saw last week, like the clean animals in these first eight chapters, that we learn to walk with divided hoofs. Walk with divided hoofs. That is, walk divided in the Lord, separate from the world, distinct from the world. Not looking like the world, thinking like the world around us, acting like the world, but being pleased in the Lord to be different. That it's okay to truly be a Christian. For someone to label you, oh, you're, you're one of those Jesus followers, aren't you? Yes, I am. Proud to be so. Distinctive. Paul said, Ephesians 4.1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And also like the clean animals in this chapter, not just walking with divided hooves, separate from the world, but chewing the cud. Chewing the cud. That Hebrew word gerar. That we said last week again, it was used as an idiom. As we use it, let me chew on this. Let me take this. Here's some food for thought. Let me think through this. Let me, let me meditate on it. To chew the cud is an example of meditation. Now the opposite would be chewing the fat. You can chew the cud, which is a picture of meditation, or chew the fat, which an awful lot of churches do this day, these days. Chewing the fat. What's the latest fad? What's the new thing? What's the hype? Who's written the latest book that's selling big at Costco? That's chewing the fat as far as I'm concerned. And there are plenty of great books out there. What's the newest movement? What's the newest craze? What's the hype in the church? I, did, I told our elders last night, and this is kind of fun, Cheryl and I finally got our garage cleaned out completely. I really feel moved in now because both cars park in the garage. Thank you very much. <laughs> but to do so, I had to go through all of our book boxes. Now, I've been a pastor for a while, and this actually draws back to my very first week of pastoring. I was a youth pastor, walked into my office, I had these huge bookshelves, and one book and my Bible. I had the Youth Builder by Jen Burns and my Bible. And so the Youth Builder kind of sat there all by itself on the bookshelf and it was really embarrassing. And people would walk in and say, oh, this guy's well read. You know? So I very quickly learned the, the idea of image and I pulled out all of my psychology books and put them on the bottom shelf. And then everywhere I could get books, I got books. And it didn't matter if I read them or not, I just had to get them on my shelves. People at our church were giving away free Christian books. I was grabbing them up, got them, put them on my shelf. That's a great title. I like that. There, that's good. We'll put the pink one over here and the blue one. That looks, you know. And the books were so important. And I began just gathering books. And this week I took ten boxes of books to the thrift store because I didn't need them. And it was really fun going through them because I started reading these titles that were just so dumb. I never, I, I never read that one. Am I going to need that? And, and before it was always, well, put it on the shelf. I might refer to it someday. And God has just whittled it down to one book. There's really one book 
that we need. One book to rely on. All the other books, I'm not saying throw them all out like I did. <laughs> I still have books on my shelves. Books that help me understand this book. That focus me toward this book. But there is so much chewing the fat in the church. And it does concern me. It does concern me. And I think you'll see this more as we study on tonight. How quickly we get away from God's word and get to everybody else's answer as to how to live our lives. And God's saying, what about this? I mean, you want the ultimate? You want to know? It's right here. And so he said to Joshua in Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you shall be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. But friends, not success as the world measures it. Don't get confused. Oh, if I study my Bible, I'm going to be financially sound. Not necessarily. <laughs> You may not. Now, if you use principles in the Bible, chances are it will help you financially. Chances are it will help you relationally in all these things. But the whole idea of worldly success is not what we're talking about. If you want to have spiritual success, if you want to grow in the Lord, if you want to begin to live a cleaner life, here's your answer. It's right here. Now, we're going to go right on to the next set of verses of unclean and clean animals. And we get to fish. Fish. Verse 9. These you may eat, the Lord says. Oh, and by the way, the Lord is still speaking here. He was speaking beginning in uh, verse 1 of chapter 1 of the book of Leviticus all the way through. This book, I'll remind you again, has more of the specific words of the Lord, spoken words of God, than any other book in the Bible. And so continuing on, he says, These you may eat. Whatever is in the water, all that has fins and scales, those in the water and the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. Fins and scales. But whatever is in the seas and in the rivers that does not have fins or scales, among all the teeming life of the water and among all the living creatures that are in the water, they are detestable things to you. And they shall be abhorrent to you. You may not eat of their flesh, and their carcasses you shall detest. Whatever in the water does not have fins and scales is abhorrent to you. Fins and scales good, no fins or scales bad. Fins and scales clean, no fins or scales Unclean or dirty either way. Good. Okay. These fish are determined apparently to be clean or unclean based on how they move through the water. Based on how they move through the water. And the Lord continues to give Israel these, these pictures of distinction. These ways of developing eyes for discernment. Every fisherman of Israel who reeled in and pulled up and got a fish without fins or scales would have to throw it back and as he's throwing it back would remember this is unclean. God wants me to, to distinguish between unclean and clean. And so it affected even their fishing industry. And the Lord looked ahead, by the way, because of the point that he says this, Israel is, you may recall, in the desert. <laughs> Not a lot of fish there. But God knows where he's taking the people and so he's teaching them ahead of time. He does that a lot of times in our lives as well. He knows where we're going before we do and so he begins to teach us things. But we learn as we look at Israel later on, the tribes of Simeon and Dan settle on the seacoast up to Joppa. Ephraim and half of the tribe of Manasseh had a seacoast as far down as Carmel. Zebulun and Asher had its creeks and bays. The other half of Manasseh encircled the Lake of Galilee. And the rest of Israel's tribes were either near the Jordan River or at least had some smaller streams and lakes nearby. They would all be impacted by this rule or this regulation about fish. So in their fishing, there are clean fish, there are unclean fish. Distinguish between them. Be different, Israel, in the things that you eat. Be discerning of uncleanness in the world. But the picture is interesting to me as I look at this and, and ponder these things. Finny, scaly fish swim through the waters, move through the clear, clean waters. Water creatures without fins or scales would be more likely to be found moving around in the mud in the shallows down in the muck. They still are water creatures, but they're not swimming through the clear waters. They're crawling around in the grime. And it gives us an interesting picture, a distinction in how we approach God's Word. Because in the Scriptures, water is also symbolic of the Word of God. And you might say, well, I thought water was symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Watch this. Water is symbolic of God's Word. Oil in the Scriptures is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Water of God's Word. Listen to this. Psalm 1, verse 3. Tells us the person who meditates on the Word will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. 
Ephesians 5.26, a verse we've read many times, tells us Christ cleanses the church by the washing of water with the word. And Jesus proclaimed the following. He who believes in me, John 7.38, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And you might say, well, there's where you're wrong, right? Because right there, Jesus is referring to the Holy Spirit. And you're right, he is. John 7.39 tells us by this, he spoke of the Spirit. But there's an interplay here. The Word and the Spirit. That having one without the other is problematic. We've spoken of this before. That to have God's Word without the Holy Spirit involved gives you a dry, leafy book that doesn't breathe to you. Having God's Spirit without His Word, you may be uncertain of which way to turn, where to go, how to get answers. You can feel a little nervous, but God's Spirit working in the Word is a very powerful combination, and God knew this. God's Word and His Spirit, because the Spirit causes His Word to flow like water from my innermost being. It's interesting, the more I study His Word and the more I seek and long after His Spirit, the more His Word flows inside of me the more verses come to mind. The more, even in prayer, I find myself praying the Word. Because the Word and the Spirit are so intimately connected. But there are those who don't swim in the clear spiritual waters of the Word at all. You could call them bottom feeders. Bottom dwellers sludging around in the shallows. And they may claim to have the true Word of God, but they feed falsely. The Bible calls them false prophets or false teachers. But listen to this, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, Peter calls them specifically springs without water. Jude, in Jude 12, calls them clouds without water. These are those who might have the appearance of holding on to God's word. They may have the appearance of the water of the word. But if you look closely, if you listen closely, if you're checking the word with someone teaching in such a manner, they are false feeders living in the shallows. And both Jude and Peter warned that in the end times the false teachers will be many. J. Vernon McGee wrote in his commentary on Jude, he said apostasy was just a little cloud the size of a man's hand in Jude's day. But now it is a storm of hurricane force that fills the land. Apostasy is a storm of hurricane force that fills the land. I quoted that because of Katrina. And because we have a very visual picture of what a hurricane can do, of the absolute devastation. But the devastation of Katrina is nothing compared to the devastation of false teaching that will wreak havoc in this world. Be careful of the bottom feeders. Well, how do you tell the difference? How do I know if someone's, you know, how do I know, Rick, if you're not a bottom feeder? How do I know that we're swimming through the clear water of the word here tonight? How do I tell the difference? You will know. You will know by their fruit. You'll know by their fruit. Jesus said in Matthew 24.10, At that time many will fall away and will betray one another and will hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many because lawlessness is increased. Most people's love will grow cold. But you will know the teaching. You will know if it's true by the fruit that it produces. Jude verse 12, he says that these bottom feeders, these clouds without water, he also describes them this way, autumn trees without fruit. Doubly dead, uprooted. Now, I love the autumn. It's one of my favorite times of the year. I love when it cools off and gets crisp. I love as the, as the leaves change and we get that color. I'm going to get that. Somebody kill that thing. I think that is an unclean creature right there. You tell you, you're unclean, Joe. In fact, you are because we'll touch that later. We're, you know, Don't anybody touch Joe tonight. You are fine. He's, he's out. Autumn trees without fruit. Think about it. Why is it that the leaves are changing in the autumn? It's because they're losing water. It's because they're dying. They're getting ready to fall off. And though it's beautiful, and God gives us these changes in nature as a wonderful thing, it's also a picture, Jude tells us, of false teaching that colors are changing because the leaves are growing cold and dying. But if the Spirit is present, if the water of the Word is present, it flows like springs of water. And then we come to the fruit of the Spirit, which I hope you've heard over and over as we've talked about it, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Nine specific things that tell us the fruit of the Spirit. 
love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You need to be aware of those nine things. Well, why, Rick? Isn't it just another nice verse? No, it's so much more. Because that's fruit. And those are things to look for in the life of another believer and to seek after in your life. The spiritual fruit. This shows that I'm like a tree planted by streams of water when the fruit of the Spirit is evident in my life. And if a teacher is trying to teach you something and the fruit of the Spirit is not evident in their life, be careful. You may be listening to a bottom feeder. Every one of us needs to have this list down. I just talked with a man on Sunday who accepted the Lord for the first time and it was great. And we prayed and, and he was so excited. But afterwards I said, what do I need to know? And I was thinking about, boy, there's so much. And, and I gave him several verses and I gave him the Gospel of John and said, just read the Gospel of John. You just got to see Jesus at work. It's great. And then before he left, I stopped and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. There is a verse you need. And it's Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Now this particular gentleman, and I'm not going to give too much information, I don't want to reveal, let him reveal who he is. But this particular guy is faced with going back to a life situation where becoming a new believer is, very, is going to be very difficult. Where he is going to be challenged right and left. And in that place of challenge, there's nothing more important than knowing the fruit of the people challenging you. Is there love? Is there joy? Do you sense peace coming from the person? Patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Because without the fruit of the Spirit, we are facing a cold, fruitless, waterless bottom feeder. And bottom feeders, by the way, will produce guilt. They will produce shame. They will produce legalism. They will diminish the person of Jesus and they will lay on our shoulders heavy burdens. That's what false teachers do. To the point that you may not recognize it, you may be walking out after listening to some false teaching going, Boy, I really got to work hard at this. I'm not feeling good about myself right now. My whole life in Christ, oh, Lord, this yoke is heavy. And Jesus says, That's not my yoke. My burden is light. My yoke is easy. You strap yourself to me, and I will walk you through, and you will know peace like you've never known it before. And a bottom feeder will put heavy burdens on your shoulders. Finny fish versus false feeders. I like that. I want to be a finny fish. <laughs> no, we're not going to write a song about that, but I do. I want to be. I want to be a finny fish. I want to be swimming through the clear waters of the Word, not a false feeder, abusing the Word of God, and doing so, by the way, without the Spirit of God. Luke chapter twenty-four, verse forty-nine. It's interesting. Just after Jesus said. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He said the following to, to his disciples. He said, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power. Until you're clothed with power from on high. He's speaking about the Holy Spirit. And when I used to read that verse, I thought, wow, power from the Spirit. And from a very fleshly perspective, power seems like something, yeah, be strong. I can stand up and I can tell people what's for. I can give it to them if I've got the power. The reality is, and again, teenagers, the older you get, the more you experience this in life. I simply need power to walk in the will of God. I need power just to not be overcome by the flesh. I need the power of the Spirit flowing through me to help me navigate these waters. I need that power. Not power like the Lord thing, the world thinks of it, but power is only the Lord gives. Well, verse 13 going on. Some more unclean things. It says, These moreover you shall detest among the birds. They are abhorrent, not to be eaten. The eagle and the vulture and the buzzard, and the kite and the falcon in its kind, every raven in its kind, and the ostrich and the owl and the seagull. <laughs> the seagull, mine, mine, and the hawk in its kind. <laughs> and the little owl and the queen. Isn't that just the greatest scene in a movie? I just love that. All the little seagulls and Finding Nemo. If you haven't seen Finding Nemo, for this scene, the whole movie's worth it. The seagulls are all in that little thing and they're sitting there and, and, and the little, I don't remember, I think it's Nemo, flops out in front of them and they all just look at him and start going, mine, 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 mine. I love it. I love it. 
Seagulls are unclean, and so they should be. And the hawk, in its kind, and the little owl, and the cormorant, and the great owl, and the white owl, and the pelican, and the carrion vulture, and the stork, and the heron, in its kind, and the hoopoe, and that is how you say it, the hoopoe, and the bat. So you have all these birds, all these unclean birds, and they have interesting distinctions. You'll notice that most of them are birds of prey, preying on defenseless things, as opposed to being people who prey, birds of prey, eagles. I, I heard this story, uh, actually it was, it was from Chris Beyer, telling me he knew a woman here on Whidbey Island who was out gardening, and her little poodle was there running around behind her, and without even seeing it, the bird swooped down, picked up the poodle, and took off, and she never saw the poodle again. <laughs> and we, we measure here the fruit of the Spirit by those who laugh at such a thing. Who have compassion. I heard that story, and my little dog Reggie, he runs around out on our deck. I'm always out there going. The eagles circling? They have been known, they have been known, if you didn't realize there's eagles on this island, have been known to pick up small deer. Birds of prey. Birds of prey, unclean animals. Or what about heron? I think I told some of you the story about the time I was sitting out here watching the pond, but Cheryl and I were watching out of the Gilmore's pond, and a heron flew down and landed and plucked a frog right up out of the water. And this frog, I, I, I kid you not, was at least this big. Huge. And the legs are hanging out, and here's the heron's beak, and the legs are kicking, and the heron's beak is shaking it around. And threw the frog down on the ground, the frog hopped, and the heron went, boom, and picked it up again, and shook it around, and this poor little frog, and all his little froggy buddies are in the shallows going, it was intense. But the heron, the heron is an unclean bird. Or what about the hoopoe? The hoopoe. It's called this because it makes a hooping sound, apparently. It goes hoop, hoop. So this is what it's called. But the hoopoe bird, how are we ever going to get through the rest of this chapter? I don't know. Because it just gets weirder. This particular bird has a nest that stinks so bad it rivals a skunk. Unclean. Unclean. And we come right back to the fact that birds characterize evil in the Bible. And they do. <laughs> we got used to the birds in here, but I'll tell you what, the first year I was convinced that we had been plagued by evil birds. They're just flying around and people ducking, you know. And, but birds characterize evil. When you hear parables told by Jesus in the New Testament and he refers to birds, check it out. They characterize or caricature evil in the Bible. But if that's the case, there's an interesting story involving ravens. Ravens in this list are an unclean bird. And yet in 1 Kings 17, Elijah the prophet has just gone to Ahab and he says, Ahab, here's the deal. It's not going to rain unless by my word. All rain will now cease and desist. And the rain stopped. And they were hit with severe famine and drought. And the Lord said, Elijah, during this season, I want you to go over by this little cherub creek here. Sit down by the creek. And you drink water from that creek. And I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to send ravens to feed you. Listen to this. 1 Kings 17.5 Elijah went and did according to the word of the Lord. For he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning. And bread and meat in the evening. And he would drink from the brook. So I'm looking at this and thinking, yeah, a raven, unclean bird, and, and cross-referencing, finding ravens being the bird of choice for God to send to feed Elijah. And I think, why would he do that? Why would he send an unclean bird to feed one of his prophets during this time of drought? The answer is simply this. God can use anyone or anything to minister to me. The question isn't with the tool, it's not with the method, it's not with the individual, it's in the response. Do I have ears to hear? Am I seeking to hear the word of the Lord however it's brought? You might say, well, my parents aren't Christians, why should I obey them? My boss is, boss is an atheist, why should I respect him? My president didn't hurry fast enough with the hurricane relief. Why should I pay attention to anything he says? My husband won't go to church. My pastor's a jerk, which may be why your husband won't go to church. Why should I listen to anybody who is raven-like? Why should I pay attention 
to her, she's a weird bird. Or that guy's just foul. <laughs> Gang, we can learn from anybody God sends our way. Again, aware of what they're bringing based on the fruit that they have in their lives. But we can learn from anybody. If God can use a raven, He can use anyone. Our prayer needs to be simply this. Lord, help me discern what is from You, even if it's carried to me by a raven. Give me ears to hear and a heart to be changed. By the way, interesting, at the end of this list is the bat. See up there? We have a bat in the barn. If you didn't know that and you'd like to leave now, we understand. But he was flapping around during worship a few weeks back. The bat is an unclean bird. And it's funny how these leathery birds literally freak us out. I mean, you need a little sparrow to dive bomb you and it's just annoying. But a bat is like, ah, get out, run! It's going to bite me! It's a vampire! But I want to show you one thing about the bat that I think is important to know. There is a day when a greater fear than bats will drive men to live where bats live. The Bible tells us, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 19, men will go into caves of the rocks and into holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty. When He arises to make the earth tremble. In that day, men will cast away to the moles and the bats their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, in order to go into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty. When He arises to make the earth tremble, and God says be discerning even when you see the bat understand the day is coming when you will fear something else more than the bat especially if you are outside of the Lord there is a terrible day coming Jesus calls it the time of great tribulation a time that is unlike anything that has ever happened in the world I watched the pictures of the hurricane and over the last week, I have been glued to the TV as many as you have, as, you have, as rescue efforts have gone, have gone on. And just to see an entire, an entire seaboard devastated. And I think it's not even close to what the time of tribulation will be like. Worldwide. A time, the Lord says, where men will throw their idols. They will take everything that was so important to them that they lifted up as the main thing and they will throw it to the bats to live where the bats live. They will be so frightened. And if you want to understand more about that time and how to avoid it, we're going to start the book of Revelation on the 18th of September on Sunday night. We'll we'll get there. But God is saying, Israel, be distinctive, be discerning, keep your eyes open. In the skies above Israel that will be teeming with all these different kinds of birds, as you look at these birds, discern unclean versus clean. And we need to understand that there is sin in the world. It's all around. This is interesting to me that Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. This is his title. A couple of things. It's interesting that's where the birds fly. He's the prince of the power of the air. But you know what? The air doesn't have a whole lot of power. It's just kind of there. I would much rather be driven by the power of the wind, the pneuma in the Greek, the Holy Spirit. But the, the wind moves. The wind directs. The wind guides. The wind fills my sails and takes me places. That's what the Holy Spirit does. But Satan, the prince of the power of the air, does nothing. He's just there, filled with birds. The Bible promises this time of terror will be coming. Rick, why do you tell us that? Well, that sounds like a heavy burden. <laughs> sounds like that bottom feeder guy you were talking about. Why do you go to these places of tribulation? Because, my friends, we need to learn to live our lives with a sense of holy urgency. The truth is, if you're in Christ, you're saved. You will not face the time of tribulation. But you know people who are not in Christ. You know people who today, if Jesus called us home, right now, would not be saved. Now you may say to me, well I hate thinking about that. Don't tell me that. I'm just going to go home depressed or worried or fearful for a son or a daughter, a brother or a sister, a, a family member, a friend who doesn't know Jesus. I don't need to hear from you that they're not saved. Yes we do. Because when we don't hear that folks around us are not saved, we just put it out of our mind. Just like Hurricane Katrina. Once the TV's off and I get going to other things, I'm not worried about New Orleans. I'll tell you what, the residents who used to live there are every day dealing with that. 
God wants us to be mouthpieces. We live in a lost world. We live in a world that is spiraling toward that time of tribulation. And I pray that God will make us distinctive enough and discerning enough in this world that our very lives make the difference. That people see difference in us. And by seeing that, say, I want some of that. I'd like some of that. Can, can I have some? I need what he or she has. Verse 20, going on. All the winged insects that walk on all fours are detestable to you. Yet these you may eat among all the winged insects which walk on all fours, those which have above their feet jointed legs with which to jump on the earth. These of them you may eat. And I know you're all waiting to find out which insects you may eat. The locust in its time. And the devastating locust in its time. And we all know that John the Baptist wore camel's hair and he ate locusts and wild honey. And some commentators have tried to say that locust was actually a kind of berry or, or something. No, it was a locust. He ate bugs, okay? Get over it. And the cricket in its time. And the grasshopper in its time. But all other winged insects, which are four-footed, are detestable to you. Verse 24. By these, moreover, you will be made unclean. Whoever touches their carcasses... That is the body of a dead insect. Jim, uh, Joe, sorry. Jim, Joe, Joe, Jim. Whoever touches even their carcasses becomes unclean until evening. And whoever picks up any of their carcasses shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. Why unclean until evening? I'll read on. Verse 26, concerning all the animals which divide the hoof but do not make a split hoof or which chew the cud, they are unclean to you. Whoever touches them becomes unclean. Also, whatever walks on its paws among all the creatures that walk on all fours are unclean to you. Poor Reggie. Whoever touches their carcasses becomes unclean until evening. And, verse 28, the one who picks up their carcasses shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. They are unclean to you. Now, think about this. For the Hebrew, the evening was the beginning of a new day. The new day started on the Hebrew calendar in the evening, not in the morning. And I always like this, how for the Hebrew, for the Jew, it started dark and ended up light. That's a good way to look at the world and to live. You start out in the darkness, but you're headed toward the light. And so for the Hebrew person who found themselves unclean, out of service, literally for the day, they would be unable to worship, unable to fellowship in society. They were outcast, unclean, for that day. But they still had the night. You see, as they came home in evening, after doing what they had to do to become clean again, they were clean in their home that night. And they would have all evening to chew the cud over what had happened, awakening the next morning to a new day of cleanness. 2 Peter 1.19 tells us today we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your house. You see gang, like the Hebrew person, we are in the evening. We're in the evening. We've come to Christ. We've found cleanness in Him. The uncleanness of the day. The things that we did, the sin that, that held us down. We've been washed. We're clean. But we are in the evening. The morning star has not yet arisen. The day has not yet dawned. But we are clean. And we are facing the dawning of a new day that is coming soon. Look for it. Long for it. But understand that even the touching of an unclean thing causes uncleanness. Look at verse 29. It says, Now these are to you the unclean among the swarming things which swarm on the earth, the mole and the mouse and the great lizard in its kind, and the gecko and the crocodile and the lizard and the sand reptile and the chameleon. These are to you the unclean among all the swarming things. Whoever touches them when they are dead becomes unclean until evening. If you even touch the dead carcasses of unclean things, your day is shot. You're unclean until evening. And Jude said in Jude 23, hate even the garment polluted by the flesh. The Lord, my friends, is drawing the proverbial line in the sand. He's saying, here's the distinctive line. There are things that are clean and there are things that are unclean. Discern and do not touch the unclean. Why, Lord? Because if I touch the unclean, I won't be saved anymore? No. Because the unclean can never be made clean by you. 
You can't make the unclean clean. Ephesians 5.11, this is harsh stuff, but listen, do not participate, Paul says, in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. But instead, even expose them. He says it's disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. Even to speak about things, it's disgraceful. Even to talk about sin. We don't talk about sin. We just watch it on our favorite shows. But we don't talk about it. Paul would say, even that's disgraceful. How often do we do that? Joke. Or watch certain things, or see certain movies, or, or bring things up in seemingly casual conversation, dealing with talking about sin as, as if it's no big deal. That's <laughs> you know, just the two of them, you know. They're not married, but hey, it's okay. It's just, you know, we all understand. I remember being in college, and Cheryl and I were engaged at the time, and the conversation among engaged couples, dealing with what was going on in their lives primarily. And it was all couching to pray for us because we're really struggling, but then they'd tell you the whole story about what was going on. And Paul would say, it's disgraceful even to talk about it. But we've gotten so comfortable in our culture, so casual in these things. You might say, well, Rick, I can handle it. I can. I, I, can, I can deal with it. I can handle the flesh, all right. Besides, if I spend more time with my lost friends, some of that good in me will rub off on them, won't it? Isn't that a possibility? That the good that Christ has done here, it can rub off. Flip in your Bibles for a moment to the book of Haggai. Haggai, from the Old Testament prophets. Haggai chapter 2, verse 11. An interesting few verses here. Haggai chapter 2, verse 11. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priests for a ruling. Okay, a little priestly quiz. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold or cooked food or wine or oil or any other food, will it become holy? And the priest answered, no. And then Haggai said, if one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, It will become unclean. And then Haggai said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and whatever they offer there is unclean. What does this mean? Touch an unclean thing, and you will be unclean. But you can't make an unclean thing clean. Let me say that clearly for your understanding. You and I, we cannot make an unclean thing clean. Only one can do that. Only Jesus can make an unclean thing clean. We can't. We don't have that power. We don't have that pure of blood. Only the blood of Christ can make an unclean thing clean. What are you saying, Rick? Well, sometimes we actually think that our cleanliness is good enough to rub off someone else's uncleanliness. That we think, yeah, I can hang out with this person and just my goodness is going to save them. And then we begin to get the Messiah complex thinking that I have what it takes to save someone. Revelation game, I as Pastor Rick at the British Christian Fellowship am not going to save a single person. And neither will you. Rick, you were just telling us that we need to tell people about Jesus and then be all evangelical. And you're saying we can't save people? Right! Which is why you tell them about Jesus. Because you can't do it. You can't save someone's life. You can't reach into the life of someone else's sin and say, okay, we're going to work with you and fix it and make it clean. I've got the tools. I've got the books on my shelf. I can do this. And all the while, what people need is they need Jesus. And they need to be pointed to Jesus and prayed for in the name of Jesus because we won't save anyone. Now, God moves the distinction and the sermon into the most private place. He goes from the company of Israel and the people into their tents, into the home. Verse 32. Also, on anything which one of them may fall, now we're talking about the mouse or the lizard or unclean little things, on anything on which one of these may fall, when they are dead, it becomes unclean, including any wooden article or clothing or a skin or a sack. Any article of which use is made, it shall be put in water and be unclean until evening, and then it becomes clean. 
As for any earthenware vessel into which one of them may fall, whatever is in it becomes unclean. And you shall break the vessel. Any of the food which may be eaten on which water comes, that is water that's been now touched by one of these unclean animals or, or little carcasses, shall become unclean. And any liquid which may be drunk in every vessel shall become unclean. Everything, moreover, on which part of their carcass may fall becomes unclean. An oven or a stove shall be smashed. Serious bummer, especially if you just, ladies, got the stove of your desire and a little gecko falls dead onto it. Oh, sorry, honey. That's gone. Every oven or stove shall be smashed. They're unclean and shall, be con- and shall continue as unclean to you. It's not just when you're out walking in the world. It's insidiously present in the private place, the most private place, the home. And God is beginning to say, hey, Israel... Man, you may try to keep sin out, but it's present. Unclean things are present in your home. A little bug like the one a few minutes ago is going to come flying along, get whacked, and fall right into a jar full of grain. Unclean. Throw it out. Now God's doing a couple of things here. One thing is He's protecting against germs. And as we said a couple weeks ago, Israel, at one point in its history, was twice as likely to live longer, live twice as long as their Gentile neighbors, simply because they ate based on God's diet. It was incredibly healthy. God gave great guidelines for his people to literally help them live longer and healthier than the pagans who were all around them. But he's also pointing out a reality. There are unclean things in our homes. Uh, This is interesting, the mouse. We all know that the mouse lives in our homes, resides in our homes. For most of us, it's on the desk right next to our computer. And the mouse is unclean. And I'm not kidding. The mouse is one of the most unclean things in our culture. For as wonderful and, and as useful as the internet may be, and it is for studying and for research and for learning things and for emailing friends, it is also the most insidious work of sin that Satan has ever introduced into the world, in my mind. The, the immediate readiness of so many types of sin that people used to have to go out and try and find or sneak around and try and get, and you can just, with the push of a button, with the squeeze of the mouse... You immediately have that which is unclean all around you. And I'm going to say this, if you are into internet gambling, or internet pornography, or astrology, or gossip, or hoaxes, or cults, get out. Even if it means getting rid of the mouse. And not just the mouse, the whole computer. Well, Rick, you can't live in this computer age without a computer. You can if it's going to send you to hell. Better not to have the computer, I think Jesus would say. Better to cut it off than to enter into hell with all the internet knowledge of the world. Mouse is unclean. So what do I do when something is made unclean in the home? Well, with wood, clothes, skin, sacks, wash them with water. For us as Christians, we are washed continually with the water of the Word. Continue to get washed. What about earthenware vessels? They're to break them. Some unclean thing falls into a little ceramic pot. You break the pot. And we come before the Lord as broken vessels, as humble before the Lord, never assuming that we have gotten it together. Never assuming that we can stand before the Lord and say, I've had a righteous day, Lord. Because it's in those moments where God will say, did you see the smudge on your shirt? I got a smudge on my shirt right here before I was coming down tonight. I was all excited, put on a nice clean shirt. After dinner, I looked down, there's a smudge. Unclean. Stoves or ovens What do you do with a stove or your oven? You smash it You get a new one You completely destroy it And I think the Lord would say Let our fire be the fire of holiness within us Smash the stove if it's unclean But you have a passionate burning fire in your heart For holiness God is serious about teaching his people To discern between clean and unclean Especially when no one else is looking Especially when that front door closes and the lock goes click and no one knows what's going on in your life. You discern between what is clean and unclean. There is an exception in the home. Verse 36 tells us, Nevertheless, a spring or a cistern collecting water shall be clean, though the one who touches their carcass shall be unclean. Why? Because the water is fresh and it's moving and it's clean. We lived out on West Beach for a time. 
Tom and Jackie loved the water out on West Beach. We got to experience that. We were on a well system out there, and you'd turn on the water and get a glass and pull it back, and it'd be brown and yellow and silty and disgusting. We had a horrible well. And there aren't a lot of good wells out on West Beach. But then we moved back over here. This is while our house was being built. We stayed in the Gilmore's house over here. And I remember the first glass of water out of the tap. And it was pure. It was crystal clear. And it tasted so good. And it was well water. What was the difference? Well, I'm told, and Heather, correct me if I'm wrong, that the well on this property is an artesian well. In other words, it's flowing. You don't know this. Well, I don't know. I just drink the water. My dad does that stuff. But there's a difference between stream water that's flowing and moving and water that's just standing. You didn't know that? Dan, you knew that? Thank you. At least one of the kids <laughs> John chapter 4 verse 14 Jesus said whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life we're talking about the fresh clean water of the spirit and isn't it great to know that when unclean things fall into living water the living water does make them clean the living water, the Holy Spirit, can make the unclean clean. In Jeremiah 2, verse 13, the Lord calls Himself, and I love this, the fountain of living waters. God is the fountain of living waters. And even when a rat, or a lizard, or a pig, like some of us, fall into the living waters, the living water can wash them and make them clean. Jesus is the fountain of living water and His Spirit washes over us as a fresh spring. Revelation 21 verse 6, Jesus at the end of all things calls out this promise. He says, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Without cost. That word literally is freely. I will give freely. The word in the Greek is Dorian. Dorian, I will give freely, without cost, the living water to anyone who thirsts. Andrew Bernard, in his, in his devotional book, Heavenly Springs, said the following. He said, take the water of life freely, though you cannot allege a single reason why you should take it. Take it freely. Are there conditions? Yes, there's one condition for receiving living water. Thirst. Thirst. That's the only condition Jesus lays out. If you are thirsty, come and drink. Verse 37. Interesting, if part of their carcass falls on any seed for sowing, which is to be sown, it's clean. Though, if water is put on the seed, and a part of their carcass falls on it, it is unclean to you. Well, what's the difference? Seeds that are dry versus seeds that are wet. Well, if you think about it, your typical little seed has a protective shell. God knows this and it's healthy. A little dead lizard falls on your vat of seed, but it's dry seed. Just pick the lizard out and chuck it. The seed's okay. Why? Because the seeds have their little protective shell. But seeds that have gotten wet are now, what's the word, viable, soluble. And so whatever the disease is that's on the little dead lizard as it lands on the seed now can seep into the seed and can bring about disease. So God says if the, if the seed's wet... Don't go there. Throw it out. If the seed's dry, it still has its protective shell, you're okay. You can eat that seed. It's still clean. What does Jesus say the seed is a picture of in Scripture? What is the seed in the Scripture? It's the Word. Jesus said it's the Word. In the parable of the seed and the sower, Luke chapter 8, He said the seed is the Word of God. What's the parallel here? Here, First Peter, verse one, verse uh, chapter one, verse twenty-three. Peter writes, "You've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but of imperishable. That is through the living and enduring Word of God. The seed is the Word." But this reminds us of again another unclean use of the Word. What do you mean? How's that? When the Word is watered down, it becomes unclean. When the word is watered down, soaked by popular opinion, diluted by so-called contemporary views, changed to meet the current needs of man, thinned out by the flesh, it is unclean. There is a purity in God's word when it's not watered down, when it is taught as it is. And we don't have to fear what the word tells us. We don't have to change it. We don't have to try and reinterpret it 
to fit this particular culture to make it more relevant. And we got translations out the wazoo. We've got translation after translation after translation because somehow along the lines we have decided that we've got to have it in an easier contemporary language to read and understand. And it gets watered down and watered down and more and more simple-minded and incredibly important truths get lost. And so I would encourage you when you look for a translation of the Bible don't look for easy to read. Look for accurate. Look for one that is translated well. It is word for word. Don't look for one that just tickles your fancy. Great ideas of man will come and go, but my friends, the word stands forever. First Peter 1.24, Peter says, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Verse 39, reading on, also... If one of the animals dies, which you have for food, that would be one of the clean animals, the one who touches its carcass becomes unclean until evening. So even a clean animal, once it's dead, we're not talking about a clean animal that's been killed for meat. We're talking about a clean animal that's just kind of often died on the side of the road somewhere. If you touch it, you're unclean until evening. He too who eats some of its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. And the one who picks up his carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. Now every swarming thing, verse 41, that swarms on the earth is detestable not to be eaten. Listen closely, whatever crawls on its belly... And whatever walks on all fours, whatever has many feet in respect to every swarming thing that swarms on the earth, you shall not eat them, for they are detestable. Do not render yourself detestable through any of the swarming things that swarm, and you shall not make yourselves unclean with them, so that you become unclean. And what kind of an animal is it that crawls on its belly? Snake. And Israel immediately is drawn back to the very creature through which Satan worked to enter sin and death into the world in the first place. What Revelation 12.9 calls the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. God says to Israel, if you see a snake in the grass, don't forget who introduced you to sin in the first place. Don't forget where it came from. But Christians, don't you forget the promise either. Genesis 3.15, God said, I will put enmity between the serpent and the woman and between your seed, the serpent's seed, and her seed. He, the serpent, shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel or crush him. You shall crush him on the head and he shall bruise him on the heel. Speaking specifically, we've talked about this before, it's the proto-evangelical, it's the first time in the Bible where the gospel is presented. Where God says there is a seed, a miraculous seed, who will be born of woman. And that seed is, of course, Jesus. And I will put enmity between you, Satan, and Jesus when he's born into the world. And you're going to strike at him. But you're going to strike out. Jesus is going to crush your head. And that's the promise. Though Satan came crawling on his belly to seduce Eve, he struck at the heel of Christ, but he struck out. And his seduction will only end with a severe headache. James chapter 4 verse 7. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And now we come to what this chapter is really all about. It's not really about food or diet or animals at all, is it? Verse 44 says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. For I am the Lord, who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. And so you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the law regarding every animal and bird and every living thing that moves in the waters and everything that swarms on the earth. To make a distinction between the clean and the unclean, between the edible creature and the creature which is not to be eaten. God wants us to discern sin. God wants us to be alert and aware, to be distinguished in the world, to be different, but to discern between that which is right and wrong. And let me again clarify. This whole idea of discernment is not so that you can work your way into heaven. It's not so that you can find and achieve your salvation. God brings that through His grace. But the discernment of unclean versus clean is what allows us to come into the presence of the Lord, to walk before the Lord, to have fellowship with Him. 
One last quote from Heavenly Springs. Andrew Menard writes, Sit beside this well. And when your soul is sad because of sin in you, drink of His free love again. Sit beside this well. And when your soul is sad because of the sin around you, drink of this well again. Sit beside this well. And when the coldness of backsliding grieves you, drink of this well of free love again. Is it not a cure for every evil? Does it not also put hope and expectation into your soul? Sit beside this well and drink freely again. Let's pray. Father, may the word discernment ring in our minds tonight. And would you, Lord, give us spirits that discern between that which is clean and unclean in the world, that which is right and that which is wrong. And help us not to shrink back from it, Father. Not to afraid, simply to look like the church. To look like children of God. Help us to walk with, with the joy and the enthusiasm of knowing that we're saved. And the ever-present urgency of desiring to save others. Oh, Father, we know we can't do it. We know that we don't have what it takes to cleanse this world, to save this world. But we know and we believe that the blood of Jesus can cleanse any unclean thing. And so put Jesus on our hearts, His name in our mouths, that as we walk discerning and different, we also do so speaking the name of Jesus and drinking freely from the water of life that comes through Him and by Him. Father, thank you so much for your word. And we give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless you all.